Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for our time tonight. Um, I'm thankful for a time of worship where we can um, proclaim your goodness and, uh, and kind of share the cry of our hearts to, um, to be close to you, to understand you more, to walk in your will, to be obedient. I pray that as the kids go to their classes, as the adults stay in here, that tonight as we engage the book of Judges, that we would uh, be encouraged at your steadfastness and that we would be warned by the lack of steadfastness in Israel and that we would be uh, sobered by a lot of ups and downs uh, in this book and in this particular um, study tonight. Lord, we love you very much. We count it a sweet privilege to be called your children, um, to have the Spirit, um, to have understanding in the Spirit is a privilege and a blessing, and I pray that we would not be like our ancestors of the faith, Israel, who threw blessings back in your face so often. So help us to, to take that thought and take that eagerness for, um, for being true to you uh, with us as we go into our studies. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I spent most of the afternoon in the book of Judges. I just, it's one of those books where, you know, sometimes you can put some notes together on something, spend time in it, and teach it, but the book of Judges is so, the narrative of the craziness is so intense that, like, you just kind of need to soak it in before you come and teach it. And so, <laughs> I think spending a lot of time in it before teaching it is helpful because I'm sitting here able to just say, you do not want to trust those guys. You don't want to put your faith in the judges. You do not want to be as ridiculous as Israel was. You, and, and if you're in such a desperate situation, it's, it's really good to know it. And so there's a number of things we're going to engage tonight. A lot of difficult things in judges. I'll just kind of warn you. I mean... Um, Spiritually, I mean, you're tired when you finish the book of Judges, so we're going to finish it tonight. We may be a little bit spiritually worn out, um, but I think that's good because that helps to keep us on track with the Lord's will. And the Lord went to great lengths to show again and again and again to his people how desperately they need him. And so we're, that's, that's the main thing we're going to be engaging tonight in a handful of different ways. So the memory verse in Judges is 2125. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. 2125, that would be the last verse um, of the book, and we're going to start with it tonight, and we're going to end with it tonight. So it's, uh, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I encourage you all to memorize that as a family. Spend time with your kids uh, working on that. Use use the songs that um, Clint has put together on Remember Sing. If y'all haven't downloaded that yet from iTunes, you need to Remember Sing. Uh, it's the way that we are uh, memorizing scriptures through the Old Testament, and Clint has been working hard on that, and it's something you need to go do. Um, as much as any other book of the Bible, we mentioned last week that the book of Judges is about leadership, but we really didn't get to any points on leadership last week because we kind of had to set the stage on what patterns we were seeing in the life of Israel um, during this time. Last week, we set the stage and particularly considered that the people respond to God's blessing with sin. That was the first thing. The people respond to God's blessing with sin. God 
And they respond to God's punishment with repentance. So the pattern that that forms is God blesses, the people respond in sin, God disciplines and punishes, they repent. And it's very similar with us. We bless, we are very blessed, and we sin. And God disciplines us through the word, through accountability, um, through consequences. And then there's repentance. And so there's this pattern that was going on way back during the time of the judges and even before that. And, uh, and, and that sets the stage for why we need judges in the first place. Why, why did the nation of Israel need these people who were called judges? So, kind of the outline for the night. We're going to look at this temporary deliverance and an ultimate deliverance. And how God temporarily delivers the people through very imperfect judges. He delivers through imperfect judges, and it's a temporary thing. And then we're going to look at how the people need what God would ultimately give, which is a perfect Savior. Um, that's what they need, and that's what God will give them. So that's kind of our little roadmap for the night. So God delivers through imperfect judges. Turn to Judges 2. We're going to read verses 16 through 19 together. Oh, I hope everyone had a good spring break. Did y'all have a good spring break? It was in my notes to make sure to lovingly say, I hope you have a good spring break. All right, enough of that. Let's get to the text. Um, um, 2, 16 through 19 says this. Then the Lord raised up judges. So how did the judges come about, just to be clear? The Lord raised them up. Okay. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Anytime the intro to a study uses the word hoard, you're going to know this is going to be a pretty intense study. And, and it's, I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to just be funny. I mean, it is, that is a, a bam in your face from the get-go. They, they did not follow the judges. They whored after the gods of the land. And um, it's sobering and it's sad. And it says, um, for they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands, the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways." So, we start on an encouraging note. Um, what was the role of the judges as they were raised up by God? What was their role according to those verses we just read? Yeah, there were people still on the land plundering them, oppressing them, um, hurting them, afflicting them, and the judges were raised up at particular times to save them from, from such movement from those who were still in the land. Now, how did the people respond to such leadership? What did they do? Yeah, nothing changed. They hoard after the gods of the land. And so you see God in his mercy raising up judges to help them in the oppression that they're receiving, yet they're receiving the oppression because they're not doing what they were told to do. What were they told to do when they went into the promised land? Kill them all. And what did they do? Last week we saw that they didn't do that. 
We saw last week that there was a failure to complete the conquest. And so here, leadership is raised up. Now, question, how does our culture generally view leadership and authority? Kind of a loaded question because there's probably different parts of the culture that view it differently. Distrust? Say that again? Resentment? Yeah. How else do we generally view leadership and authority? What are some views some people can have in reference to leadership and authority? Hold them in high regard. Now we're getting somewhere. As long as you do what I want you to do, I'll follow you. That's easy to follow someone who's doing what you want them to do, right? There are 12 judges in the book of Judges. Some are more familiar to us than others. Just before reading, who are the judges that come to mind, usually from childhood Bible stories or, or maybe studies of your own? Who are some of the judges that come? Well, Deborah. Very good, Deborah. Yes. Saw that from a mile away. She smiled. Her hand went up. Who? Samson. Gideon. Say that again. Yep. Is it Japheth or Jephthah? Jephthah. It's hard to say. It is hard to say. Sort of like, what was that one? Shibboleth. Do what? Yep. Yeah, there's four really that are um, generally more familiar to us, and y'all named them as the first four. Uh, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson are dealt with at the largest length, the greatest length in the book. And then shorter accounts are given for Othniel, which I think is what you're getting at, uh, Ehud, which um, Ehud's the, the left-handed assassin. We'll get to that. Shamgar, Tola, Jair, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. Um, we don't know most of them. Why? Because they were temporary, and we'll get to that even more in a few minutes. All were from various tribes. They worked regionally in, in general, uh, delivering Israel from various enemies. So one of the notes that Dever has is that we have to make sure we see at the beginning as we're seeing these judges being raised up by God is that no one of them had central role, had a central role over the whole nation. It wasn't like, okay, you're the judge for all of Israel right now. Okay, you died. Now you're the judge for all of Israel right now. Actually, each of the judges were more... Um, they, they, it was temporary, but it was also um, according to the territory. So it wasn't, they weren't judging the entire area. They were judging the parts that needed a judge because of the oppression they were getting from their enemies. So um, there was no central office for judge management. It wasn't like each of the judges would gather for the judge assembly. It, it, it was not like that. It was temporary, and it was um, according to, to territory. And then also, um, God raises up deliverers for the people as they needed them. The point of the judges was that the people needed judges, and God raised them up for that reason. So, when you read through the book of Judges, it is shocking, shocking to see how flawed and how fallible and how imperfect these judges are. Now, rather than lowering the bar for leadership, it shows clearly how God uses the foolish and fallible to do great things. One introduction to the Old Testament in one of the uh, 
I think Longman, one of the uh, uh, commentaries I'll, I'll look at. One introduction um, to the Old Testament characterizes five of the more prominent judges like this. And so you could say this is what we're going to engage tonight. A reluctant farmer, a prophetess, a left-handed assassin, a bastard bandit, a sex-addicted Nazarite, and others. Well, that's impressive, isn't it? Um, really, not very impressive. Yet, all their faults notwithstanding, Dever makes the point that these people, these imperfect judges, act on faith. Okay? But, I mean... You can look at some of these guys and be like, well, there's no way that was faith. That must have just been something that was a total train wreck that God used in spite of them. Yeah, he worked in spite of them. However, the word says the, they act on faith and God delivers people through them. Okay? So imperfect leadership. We're not very comfortable with it, but we've never seen anything other than that. Ever. So the judges are imperfect, fallible, and flat-out crooked in a number of ways, and God uses them to deliver people partially and temporarily. So look with me at 2.19 again. We read it earlier. I'm going I'm to read it again. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Um, the judges were a good gift from God, but as it has been said, God's good gifts cannot replace God himself. We've got to remember that. When we're looking for something from the Lord, something that we perceive that we need, they perceived that they needed a king. They got judges in the meantime, and they perceived they needed deliverance. And what we have to remember as we're looking at this thing that God provided in the way of the judges is the judges are a good gift from God, but they cannot replace God himself. All such gifts are only the dimmest reflections of the great good that God intends in Christ for those who repent of their sins and for those who trust him. So, which leads us to what the people ultimately need and what God will ultimately give, which is a perfect savior. They need more than what the judges are. Now, um, what are some of the stories? Just do y'all don't remember some of the like from your coloring sheets as kids? Is usually what I picture the the top line stories that you have from the book of Judges. There's the obvious one, Samson. Boom, the coloring sheet where he's got his hands on the pillars and for whatever reason his eyes are shut and none of the kids know why. Yeah. Um. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Um. What else? What are some others? There's Samson. What are some of the other high points that we, we know about from the book of Judges? High points, low points. <laughs> yeah. Gideon's fleece on the ground. Make it wet. Now make it dry. Okay, I believe you. What else? Yeah, that, that happened here when Gideon did the butt. Yeah. Top drawer on the left. It's chap chapter 6. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Yeah, yeah, in the end where Joseph and Mary stayed is where it started. We're going deep in theology tonight, y'all. There was an inn where Joseph and Mary stayed, and Gideon had a Bible there. It was a sign from Yahweh. Yeah. Um, okay, I, I, we're done with that question. Um, <laughs> um what has caused the nation of Israel to degenerate? What has caused it? We've seen the nation of Israel not really go from bad to better. They've kind of gone from bad to worse. What has caused that degeneration? 
They're doing what's right in their own eyes. And how has that played out? How have we seen them doing what's right in their own eyes? Idolatry, rampant idolatry. What else? Doesn't bow down to other gods. What'd you say? Disobedience. Lots of intermarrying. Lots of them. In fact, if you look at, look at chapter 3, um, verse 5. Uh, there were nations that went up against Israel, and they were to test them to see if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which were commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And in verse 5 it says, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. It's such a sad verse. It's such a sad verse, but those were the kind of decisions that led to their just absolute degeneration as a nation. What are some other ways that we saw them degenerating? Yeah, they forgot who the Lord was. I mean, do you realize this is like a generation? Like, we go from a good generation that's following the Lord to a bad generation that forgot who the Lord was. It only takes one generation. It takes one group of parents who say, we're not going to raise our children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord for that entire generation to be non-existent in the ways of the faith. It's sobering. This should sober us. This should make us take very seriously the call to raise our children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord. Um, my question, and you know, we're looking at these things that they did, is religion a private matter? No. Is it a personal matter? It's a personal account. That's, yeah. yeah, we could say it's personal, but it is not private. In the last five chapters of Judges, it just goes from bad to worse. I mean, if you read this book, by the time you're done, again, you're just like, oh my goodness, what a train wreck. They really need something more than the judges. They really need something more than what they're doing. And in the last five chapters, it goes from bad to worse. Um, it's pretty graphic, and I don't, you know, I don't want to be graphic just for the sake of being graphic, but in the last five chapters, we see the private sins of a few dramatically affect the entire nation. And what happens is Israel is led into essentially a civil war. They're fighting against each other by the time it's over. It's very, very sad. Um, we see a Levite and his concubine in the last three chapters. Um, and it starts really with Micah, and then it goes through, and they're, they're against Micah. The Danites are looking for an inheritance, and they take, and there's just, there's so much murder and so much killing uh, in this book that you get to the end in Gibeah. It, they're, what they do is very, very, very similar to even the, almost the exact wording of what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, where the men of Gibeah go. And what happened is um, the, there was a Levite and his concubine. And by the end of the, the book, they, they have taken her. They have done the worst of the worst to her for an entire night. She dies. He's so disgusted. He cuts her into pieces Ships, him out to, ships her out to Israel to prove what an, it says an abomination and an outrage that this has been. And by the time the book ends, they're just fighting each other. I mean, that's how bad it gets. I, I, I was like sick to my stomach as I'm reading what's going on and the heartlessness and the ruthlessness. And the, the next morning, she's actually laying there and she is dead. And, and he comes out and says, get up, let's go. And it's like, what is going on here? There's such such hatred and such, um, there's not, um, 
there's not the kindness that, that you would think you would see in God's people, and it has just gone from bad to worse. And so um, this, this whole section here at the end, it, it gets really bad, and it gets bad because of the private sins of a few. Now, it was, it was getting bad already, but the private sins of a few bring about this massive war where thousands and thousands of people die. It's a civil war between Israelite nations where they are going up against each other and plotting against each other. And rather than working to put the display of the glory of God, uh, you know, bright and salty, they, they're, they're spending their time working against each other and plotting and setting ambushes and lighting towers on fire. And I mean, it just gets really bad. Like the book is really, really disturbing. So this is why we're called to hold one another accountable. This is why we're called to walk in plurality. This is why our relationships are so important in regard to our sanctification. By design, private sins will have corporate impact. We need to know that. That's part of the, the, the encouragement and the impetus that God gives us in walking in holiness is that our private sins will have a corporate impact whether we think they will or not. And here we see it over and over again how one man does something so wicked, Abimelech, man, he is a, he's a... He's a rascal to be nice about it. And his sins, man, it brings about blood, bloodshed and hatred and division. And we see it throughout the book. But w- what I want us to see here, and again, I don't want to just go and read all the text because it, it really gets pretty graphic. It's pretty hard. Um, but I would encourage you to read it in your time, uh, in your studies. But um, we must hold one another accountable. We must encourage one another each day. Last week's sermon touched on this, and the upcoming week's sermon is going to be on exhorting one another, and it's because our God is very, very holy, and he calls us to be holy. And so private sins have a corporate impact, whether you think they will or not, and that is why we must walk in the light as children of the light and have a plurality of wisdom that we're walking with other people. Because when we're by ourselves, Paul Tripp words it well when he says, our view of ourselves is as accurate as a carnival mirror, and I need other people to hold up the mirror of God's word to let me know actually where I am. So this is a very sobering account that warns us to make sure we are serious about holiness because our God is holy. But there is a positive note. There's a positive note here as well. What's the positive note? Well, what you believe about God and your purpose in life will have a tremendous effect on everyone around you, on you and everyone around you. You see, what, see what's happening here? When they misrepresented God and they went against God, they had these sins, and the sins really were horrible, and, and it had a negative effect on even the Canaanites that they didn't kill. I mean, there was just all this intermarrying. It was a real mess. But the flip side of that is that if you believe in God and, and you're true to the word of God and you walk in obedience, you can have a positive, that'll have a positive effect on you and in your life and as you walk and as well as those that you are around. It will affect them. By God's design, it affects them. So this isn't just all negative. There's a positive side of this if we kind of flip the coin over and look and say, wow, if we walk in holiness, it's not like this. If we walk in obedience, it's not like this. If we walk in what the Lord says, we will not degenerate into sexual immorality and murder and lying and deceit and division, but rather we'll move in holiness and represent our God who's holy. So um, what you believe will affect everyone around you. Some, uh, one man said, when you change the religion of a people, you change the nation. When you change the religion of a people, you change the nation. That's why it's not a private matter. It has an impact. The way that you view God has a huge impact. Um, so you can see what we see here is that people become like the God they worship. Israel wasn't worshiping God. 
They were worshiping Dagon and other deities. So they became like them. They became ruthless. They became hateful. They became deeply sinful, wicked, treacherous, divisive, really, really bad because they were becoming like the God they were worshiping. And so that's generally just, I don't know, I feel like I've heard that phrase a million times from a bunch of different people. You become like the God you worship. And so um, what we're seeing here is it can go really good with faithfulness and it can go horribly with unbelief. James Boyce, one commentator, states it like this. He says, no people, and listen closely, it's a little bit of a longer quote. Um, you know, if I was teaching the sixth grade class or the fifth grade class, I probably wouldn't share this, but since we're the adult class, would you even call it a class when it's adults? I don't even know. Um, uh, I think we can share it. And it says this, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. You don't rise higher than your idea of God, the way you view God. You're not going to view God here and, and, and begin to live in a holiness that's up here. That's an impossibility. No people will ever rise higher than their idea of God. <laughs> and conversely, a loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of a people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. I mean, I remember even, I, I'm not like, you know, uber old by any stretch, but I remember as a kid, humanity was defined differently than it is currently defined now. Things that were normally accepted movements in our society were not normally accepted when I was a child. I remember um, on child, the first time I started seeing things about like gay marriage and things, and things being portrayed in a show where it was like, whoa, that's not the norm. Now the norm's changed. The, the, the lingo has changed. And so... Um, a loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character always involves a loss of people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. We are startled by the disregard for human life that has, taken, that has overtaken large segments of the Western world. And he goes on to say, but what do we expect when countries like ours openly turn their back upon God? We deplore the breakdown of moral standards, but what do we expect when we have focused our worship services on ourselves and our own often trivial needs rather than on God? Our view of God affects what we are, and our view of God affects what we do. That's part of the reason that when we preach here on Sunday mornings, it's not a consumeristic approach. There are different things over the course of history that pulled us further and further away from just expositional preaching. That used to be the norm, like going verse by verse or book by book, that used to be the norm in preaching. And then it started with a pietism where it became a very personal moral relationship with God, and it's moved all the way now to what's pretty rampant consumerism, where we say, what do people want? Not even what do they need, not even what does the Bible say they need, but what do they want, and how can I use this to keep them here? That's what consumerism is. You, you, you don't sell people what they want, you sell people what they think they want. And so, and you don't sell even what you think they need. It's, it's all about wants, and it's all about personal desires, and we just, we can have worship services that are just full of, um, it's about me, and, and what I need, and what I'm going to get from God, and don't hear me wrong, the blessings we have in Christ are more significant than any of us really realize. I mean, very, very significant. You are blessed more than you understand. You are loved with a love that is lacking in absolutely nothing. We can't wrap our heads around the fullness with which God has loved us, yet he shows us some insight to it by the work of the Spirit, and it's remarkable. So, all that to say, we focused our worship service on ourselves and trivial needs rather than on God. So when we preach, what we want to do, and when we teach what we want to do is show you how good our God is, and then we just move and worship in other things. 
Our, our life that we live is this overflow of worship. Romans 12 calls it being transformed by the renewal of your mind. I'm not going to help anyone renew their minds by just telling you what you want to hear or telling you what you already believe. That's sort of like following the leaders that as long as they're going where I want them to go, I'll go there. But if they lead somewhere where I don't want to go, they're no longer my leader. I'll be my own leader. You see, you see what I'm saying here? And so, um, so it, it's, uh, it goes good with faithfulness and horribly wrong with unbelief. So um, our, our, we will never rise higher than our idea of God. And when we lose a view, a high view of his awesome character, um, our moral values will go down and we will misrepresent him. And the moral values, you will never see a plummet as significant as the one you see in the book of Judges. It's really horrible. One commentator has referred to the story of Judges as one long, painful canonization of Israel. Isn't that sobering? One long, painful canonization of Israel. I mean, put that in our terms. If you were to put that quote, this is one long canonization of Israel, how could you put that in our terms for today's Christianity? If we're not careful and we move in unbelief, what would we call it? The Islamization of Christianity in America? What else might we call it? I want us to climb in and personalize this a little bit because it's, it's very personal. Not private. Personal. The Oprahification. All right. Not the Oprah. The Oprah. What else might it be called today? Media generation, yeah, yeah, yeah. The dumbing down of America. What else might we call it? The canonization of Israel. What does it mean when they're saying the canonization of Israel? What does that mean? Yeah, the Israelites are being conformed to the world, particularly Canaan. Now, when you look at the big story, what were they supposed to do? conquer and confront, and, and it's like they, they didn't do that. They, they went in, and now they're being canonized. I mean, that's not even a word. That shouldn't be a word. It should, there, there should be no phrase known as the canonization of Israel. That shouldn't be a word. That shouldn't be a phrase, but it is because of how they acted in unbelief. The canonization of Israel. Turn to chapter 9. Yeah, the worldliness of a church. Yeah, there, there's, man, I've been in some church services where it felt like it was more important to be an American than it was to be a Christian, especially around July 4th, just saying. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 says this. This is about Abimelech. Abimelech, quick question, who is the first king of Israel? Uh, uh, oh, oh, what is it? We heard one Abimelech and a whole lot of Saul. First one God called was Saul. That's exactly right. But guess what? Saul wasn't the first king of Israel. There was one who reigned for three years, and he was Abimelech. And Abimelech was not called by God. Abimelech was more of a self-appointed, bloodthirsty son of Gideon. So let's look at Abimelech and the the joy that he was to be around. 
chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, there's some names in here that will get you tripped up, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, um, and right before this, we see that Gideon died, but he had 70 kids because um, he had more than one wife. Um, uh, ver- <laughs> did, you, did you say, I hope, she did. I hope he did? <laughs> For the sake of her, yeah. Um, and he, uh, so he went to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerub Baal rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words. Now notice, what I want you to do is just turn back just a little bit. Just, just turn back a couple chapters. Uh, you see... Um, one after the other. I'm looking for the exact wording. Yeah, over, uh, okay, just start in stinking verse chapter 3. Start in chapter 3. That'll be fine. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. He sold them. This all goes down. It's a bad deal. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gave cushion, and he raises up some judges. And then in verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against them because they had done what was evil. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Malachites, all these things. And then what we see is Ehud kills this really fat king, like really fat. He's so fat. It's this in a joke. That sounds like I'm starting a joke. It's not a joke. He's so fat. He's this left-handed assassin. He takes the sword. He plunges it into his fat gut, and the sword disappears, and he just leaves it there. And he escaped through the bathroom. It was a great story. Um, pretty neat. Pretty neat. Um, so after him, uh, we see these judges uh, raised up, but um, you see a judge being appointed, a God appointing an Othniel, an Ehud, a Shamgar, Deborah and Barak, the people did what was evil, sold them, uh, and now Deborah, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Um, then you have her song after, she's a songwriter as well, a, a female prophetess judge. That's not normal in the Old Testament. This was a different, different breed here. Um, uh, the people of Israel in chapter 6, again, uh, did what was wrong after they had had 40 years of rest. God raises up another judge. There's a call of Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. Abbey is right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You see this, this appointment of Gideon. But then you get to the part about Abimelech. Just go ahead and turn back to 9. And you just see Abimelech saying, Hey, 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 I got this. He's not appointed. No, there wasn't this season of rest, and then Gideon dies, and God says, okay, now Abimelech is going to do this. Abimelech's just like, my dad was Gideon. I'm going to do this. And he's a bloodthirsty leader. He is not a good leader. And so we see here, and uh, go ahead and look at chapter or 9, verse 2. Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I'm your bone and your flesh. Wink, wink. Verse 3, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. What does that tell you about their hearts? For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal with which Abimelech 
hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Reckless fellows and worthless fellows is a repeated theme in the book of Judges because there's a lot of them, worthless fellows. And it goes on to say, he hired these worthless, reckless fellows, and he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. That is a bloodthirsty, ruthless man. Who did he just kill? All 70 of his brothers, because he wanted to lead. He wanted to be the guy. Jotham escapes. It's awesome. Jotham kind of, he's the little brother. He's not strong enough, but he kind of, he says this curse where this is going to come back and you all are going to, you know, either he'll lead you if you did this in good faith, but if you didn't do it in good faith, you're going to get, the fire of him is going to burn you up. And sure enough, it comes back and they burn alive. Crazy, crazy remarkable. But we see this in verses one through six, Abimelech has become a bloodthirsty king of Israel. Now look at verses 22 through 24. He kills all of his brothers. He's, uh, he's decided he's a self-appointed leader. Um, he, he, it says in 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. So he had a little bit of following or else he wouldn't have gotten it three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. You ever thought about that? That's kind of a complex thought. God sent an evil spirit to cause the division between the people of Shechem and Abimelech. Like, just, just if you think you got God in a box, and I got it, I know how he moves, he just did that. He just sent an evil spirit to come between the people of Shechem and Abimelech. Why? Read on. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands, those worthless ones, the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And uh, look at verse 50. So the Lord brings this evil spirit to come between them. Now look at what God does in 50 through 57. Abimelech is just burned. It came back around. He burns a thousand men and women in a tower. They're laying siege to a city. They go to the strong tower. They run up to the top of it. Abimelech takes an axe, chops down a bunch of wood, tells all his men, do what I'm doing, surrounds the tower, lights it on fire, creates essentially a big oven, and burns them all alive. This is not a good dude. And look at verse 50. This guy has been just walking in defiance and thinking he is the stuff. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. Oh, here we go. I know what to do here. I'll just light it on fire and burn everyone. That's what he's thinking. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. What a way to go, big guy. A certain woman. Which woman? Just a certain woman. Then his skull is crushed He's got a few breaths left, a few words left in his life. Then, in his arrogant pride, he's about to die. Your head just got crushed by a woman with a millstone, big bad man. You, you forgot to look up and see what they were throwing down the tower on top of your arrogant head. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me. Lest they say of me, a woman killed him. 
And his young man thrust him through and he died. Well, isn't that just so much more respectable? Guess what? God in his breathed out word included that you, sir, whined out about being killed by a woman and it's included in the canon of scripture and you did not die in a more upstanding way. You died because your head got crushed by a millstone that a woman threw on you because you are arrogant. Abimelech was more representative of the land of Canaan rather than of God in the land of Canaan. Abimelech was not representative of God. He, he acted like those in Canaan. He was treacherous. He was ruthless. He, he was harsh and cruel. And he, his head was crushed by a millstone thrown by a woman. Um, and as the book of Judges comes to a close, we see Israel sink to new lows of cowardice, unfaithfulness, idolatry, rape, and murder. Their false religion leads to outrageous immorality marked by strife, disrespect, and a reverence in the extreme. And in these sad chapters, we see no sign of repentance. There's no sign of repentance in these final chapters. Before then, you'd see some repentance. They cry out to God. God says, why don't you get your gods, who you have put before me, to save you? Can you imagine hearing those words from the Lord? One of the things I wrote out in the column of, uh, of my Bible, in the little journal Bible I have, was it seems that once you turn on God, once you turn from God, it's just a matter of time before you would destroy each other. That's what we see in the book of Judges. Once you have turned from God, you are no longer under his covering. You are no longer walking in obedience. Once a nation turns from God, it is just a matter of time before they destroy each other. We should heed that warning. It's a pretty serious deal given the, the climate, the global climate of what's going on here. We should take our call to follow God and to make disciples very very seriously in light of the reality that when you turn on God, it's just a matter of time before you destroy each other. They are fighting each other and killing each other by the tens of thousands by the end of the book. Look at the last verse again. We started with it, we'll end with it. Judges 21, 25. There is war. Even the tribe of Benjamin is fighting Israel. Um, there's 26,000 Benjaminites and by the time they're done fighting against Israel, they held their own for a while, and then they get down to like 600, and that's it. And then they realize, well, we shouldn't wipe out a whole tribe of God, so we should give these guys wives. And so they go, and they steal 400 virgins from a people that they didn't approve of, and they give them to the 600 men who have wives so that they could have wives. And then there were 200 left who didn't. So they said, oh, when they go out here to dance with their tambourines, just go steal 200 more virgins. I mean, it's a mess. <laughs> we're talking a serious mess. And in 2125, this is how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book just kind of trails off with sin getting worse and worse, and the outlook for Israel seeming pretty hopeless. That's how it ends. There's this fighting with Benjamin and the rest of Israel. They, they, they essentially kidnap these virgins to take, you know, and try to maybe recreate some of Benjamin, again, through intermarrying, and they're against each other. Their civil war, Gibeah, has just had this horrible crime that, that, that they've committed. And there's division within the people, and then it closes with, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Leadership's very important. Even flawed leadership, according to the book of Judges. I don't read the book of Judges and think, oh, cool, as a leader, I can just dummy it down now because the bar is really low for those guys. But, but what we see is 
generally, it is fallible leadership that God uses. Not generally, specifically and only. It's sinful people that God changes and uses for his good. And even here, we see it for a period of time in the Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king. The book just kind of trails off, and it seems hopeless. Now, in the next few books that we're going to engage, we'll, we'll engage Ruth for two weeks. Willingham will teach that, and then we're going to look at Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. In those books, Israel will be given a king. And like the judges, the king will be unable to resolve Israel's sin problem. But he will point to Christ, the ultimate king. What I want us to see here, um, Dever remarks, he says, when your state is genu- genuinely desperate, like when you finish the book of Judges, you're just like, man, that's a desperate state. They're in, they're, they're in a bad way. This is not good. When your state, and, and I'm saying this to myself, I'm saying it to you, when your state is genuinely desperate, it's good to know it. It's good to know it when your state is genu- genuinely desperate. Question, what would keep us from wanting to know our state if it was desperate? What would keep us from that? If we were in a desperate state in our relationship with God and our eternal destiny, and it was a desperate state and we needed to make some changes, what would keep us from wanting to know that? Pride, denial, arrogance, fear, awareness of the need to change, and why is that? Because we don't like to change. We kind of like to go with whatever comes naturally, which is generally sin. This was the case for Israel. It was the case for Adam and Eve. They got booted out of the garden because they needed to know how serious their situation was. It was the case for Adam and Eve. It was the case for each of our patriarchs. It's the case for us today. God mercifully gives us the opportunity to see that we cannot save ourselves I want you to know, you cannot save yourself. You cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot be good enough. You cannot save yourself. You cannot look to the judges to save you. You cannot look to the patriarchs to save you. You cannot be saved because your mom and dad were men and women of faith. That's not how it works. God mercifully gives us the opportunity to see that we can't save ourselves. Not only that, but we see that our sin has a negative effect on those around us, starting in our homes with our offspring. My sin is first and foremost going to affect my wife, my kids, the church, it, it has an effect. So God gives us these situations to see our desperate um, condition so that we can understand how bad we need him. The great patriarchs die. The law does not succeed in eradicating sin. The priests die. The judges die. The kings will die. The prophets will die. But God would let this sinful people, Israel, who were determined not to rely on him. Don't they seem determined not to rely on him? These people who were determined not to rely on them, he lets them rely on every other possible means until each of them are exhausted. Some of us have experienced that to some degree. You think that'll make you happy? Go ahead. You think, you think that'll, that'll bring you fulfillment? Okay. You think that's going to save you? Okay. You think that's how you're going to save your marriage? Okay. You think that's how you're going to become a different person with more character? Okay. And we go through these things just like Israel did to see that our sin has a negative effect and he'll exhaust all of the things we search for and show us how how desperate and destitute they are. He alone is good. We are meant to be morally and emotionally tired by the time we finish reading Judges and we're meant to despair of trusting 
some other judge or some other means to save us. Christ alone is the perfect priest, the lawkeeper, the judge, the king, and the prophet that we need. And his perfection in all these things lasts forever. It's all about Jesus. The book of Judges is all about Jesus. Because it says every other thing will lead you into a horribly desperate situation. You need one who is better. You need one who is more complete. You need one who is lacking. You need one who is not temporary. The judges were temporary. You need one who's not just local, locally located and, and, and according to the territory. You need one who is eternal and, and all-powerful and everywhere all the time. That's what you need. We need Christ desperately, and I think the book of Judges just shows us that. I want to close with, turn over to Jeremiah 23, and we'll close with a reading from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, verses 3 through 5. I think it beautifully summarizes why our hope is in the Lord. Twenty-three and uh, two. It says, "Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people: You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them." That could be said of those who were charged to lead Israel. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then look at what sweet, sweet encouragement we end with in these next three verses. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, capitalized B, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Our only hope is Christ. Let the book of Judges remind you that our only hope is Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful uh, after an afternoon and Judges and other time working through notes and now teaching through it. Uh, how absolutely weary I am of putting my hope in anything or anyone or any process or any form other than Christ. And how careful I want to be to stay in step with the Spirit in accordance with the Word and your design for leadership, your design for accountability, your design for community, your design for our friendships in Christ, your design to go and make disciples, to take seriously the call to tell people about our great God. Lord, if we're not sharing the good news, it, it, it is the means by which if they don't hear it, there will be a turning from God and it's just a matter of time before we just destroy each other. The book of Judges is sad. It's hard to read. Yet, according to 2 Timothy 3, Lord, it's what we need for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we could be equipped for every good work you call us to. So I pray that we would take it and use it as such. We love you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.